Good morning. Um, this morning we're going to look at the story of the Ascension. Um, and it's, I, I've been preaching just short of 40 years, and it's the first time I've ever spoken on this, which is nice. Um, but it got me thinking, really, because next Sunday in the Catholic Church is Ascension Sunday. In really strict Catholic countries, they'll close for a bank holiday on Thursday for Ascension Day. And it got me thinking, why for us is the Ascension so less significant? Why is it that we pay so much attention to Good Friday and to Easter Sunday and so little to the Ascension? And actually so little to the return of Jesus. But for me, all those things belong together. That's God's plan. That Jesus would come to earth and die on the cross. And that he would rise from the dead. And that he would ascend to heaven. And one day he will return. And whichever one of those you are thinking of, you cannot think of one without thinking of the other. Because they all belong as part of God's plan. Um, so we're going to look at this um, story of ascension. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1. And we'll begin in verse 3. Acts chapter 1 verse 3. It says, After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you, into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So we're going to look at what the ascension is, how Jesus ascended, and why Jesus ascended. So in simple terms, the ascension is that part of Jesus' journey, 40 days after the resurrection, where he literally ascends, goes up, is hoisted up by God back into heaven. Um, and it's quite a really powerful image. It is still something that, generally speaking, man has not yet been able to do. We can come down from the sky, just put a parachute on, 
and you can land, but we can't go up yet unless you surround yourself in metal and either go in an aeroplane or whatever. But right now, we don't have that capacity. But Jesus did. And it's a very visual thing. You know, place yourself there when you suddenly, Jesus is in the middle, and suddenly he starts going up, and you find yourself following him up into the sky, and he disappears. And it's a very visual thing, which is quite out of character, really, for Jesus. Because most of what happened with Jesus in the 33 years of his life on this earth, he was often within obscurity. He didn't make a big thing about things. His birth wasn't a big thing. You know, born away from everybody else, sneaked into Egypt... And even his resurrection was early in the morning when nobody would see it. And you kind of, you know, if PR people were talking to God, I think they would think that the resurrection was a missed trick. I mean, can you imagine it? If PR people were advising God about the resurrection, you could really go to town on that one. Can you imagine the whole stone cracking open with thunder and Jesus walking out amongst the sort of smoke and... But he didn't. It happened early in the morning and nobody saw it. But here, it's a powerful visual thing. And the best I can kind of understand it is it's almost in the form of a coronation. It's almost the form of the visual crowning of Jesus again as king. Now the coronation isn't a good word because he was a king already. You know, the resurrection or the death of Christ did not make him the king of kings and lords of lords. He was king of kings and lord of lords from the beginning of time. He always was and always will be. But for a period of time, round about 33 years, Jesus chose to lay aside those things. We sing, he laid aside his majesty. And that's exactly what Jesus did. For 33 years, he laid it aside. And then in this moment, he is taking it again. It is almost like a re-coronation, if such a thing exists. And he goes back to the Father, and he has the same relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit that he had from the beginning of time. That had been interrupted for 33 years. And God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit worked in a different way. But Jesus going back to heaven restored the order of how they worked. And so I think the first thing to say is you have to see this effectively as the coronation. Now secondly, how did it happen? Well, I am the wrong person to speak about such a thing because I haven't got a clue. And more to the point, I'm not particularly interested. Um, I'm not a scientist. Um, I'm a creative person, drama teacher by training. Um, And I'm not really bothered. Somehow it happened. Now, I know that Jesus' body, after resurrection, changed. It wasn't the same. It wasn't the same. People didn't even recognize him. You know, everybody who talked to Jesus talked to them, to Jesus, without them knowing who they were talking to. And even his mother, and that's the big sign, isn't it? Mothers know their sons, generally speaking. 
you know. I know my sons. When I used to watch Luke and Sam play cricket, people would always say, who are those who are batting? And I often didn't know, but I knew my own sons because I could just tell by the way they walked, how they walked and how they carried the bat and how they played. I always knew that Sam would play a little shot and they'd always say, run! And Luke would be, you know, off he'd go. And I just knew they were my boys. Even when they were covered in helmets and pads and all that gear, I just knew them. But Mary didn't recognize hers on the Easter Sunday morning because Jesus had transformed and he chose to reveal himself through words. And it was the words that people suddenly recognized, this is Jesus. He changed. There are accounts in, you know, of those 40 days where Jesus walked through walls and disappeared. So clearly his body changed. It was not the same as when he died. And that might account for him being able to be lifted from the earth up into the sky and away to heaven. But if it doesn't, I'll just rest on what Jesus said, which is with God, all things are possible. That'll do for me. Uh, I'm not particularly bothered about an explanation. When I get to heaven, it won't be one of my pressing questions. Jesus, how did you do it? I'll just be like, you did it. God did it. He brought you home again. Because God is a God of the impossible. You know, the whole scripture is constantly telling us that the God that established the laws of physics and nature breaks them when he chooses to. You know, the Old Testament tells us that on one day, God kept the sun in the sky long enough for an army to fight a battle so they weren't fighting in the dark. The Old Testament tells us that somebody lost their axe head made of iron in water and it sank and God made it come to the surface. The Old Testament tells us that that people were raised from the dead, that people were healed, and Jesus took that on. Jesus raised people from the dead. He raised Lazarus, and he'd been dead for three years. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I don't know what happens to your body after three days. But I fancy if they can't revive somebody after 20 minutes, the chances of doing it after three days are pretty remote. But Jesus did it. He made people that were blind see. He made leprous people be healed. He fed people from just a few loaves of bread. He turned water into wine. Our God breaks all the laws that he established if he chooses to do. Because he is Lord of all. And he is sovereign. And he can do the impossible. So really, taking a man from the earth to heaven is not all that difficult. And I fancy... If God wanted to do that to me right now, he wouldn't be saying, sorry, Jez, there's a ceiling there. It can't happen. I am absolutely confident that if God wanted to take me to heaven right now, he could do that because he's a God of the impossible. So how? I'm not really sure other than we have this amazing God who has ordered the world and if he chooses to break that order, he can. So we come to why. Why would Jesus go back to go back to heaven? Well, let me give you three reasons. 
The first is that Jesus is going back to heaven to prepare heaven for you and I. In John chapter 14, Jesus says these words. Right at the beginning, John chapter 14, verse 1. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms or mansions as I learned it. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. So the first thing that Jesus is doing, he is preparing heaven for his bride. Now I believe unequivocally that God created the world in six days. That's my belief. I believe that that's what the Bible teaches. That's what I believe. People that come from a scientific perspective might say it's outrageous. The more we get to know about heaven and the universe and all that God has created, how could he possibly do that in six days? And my response is, I don't know why it took him so long. You know, I think that God could do it in a day. I think he could do it in an hour. I think he could do it in the click of a finger. But he chose to do it in six days. And if he's created the the heavens and the earth in six days, by our reckoning, Jesus has been in heaven not short of 2,000 years, preparing heaven for you and I, and preparing the wedding of the Lamb. I think it's going to be pretty amazing. You know, when our kids were younger, we used to have this tradition on a night where they wouldn't go to sleep, so I'd have to go into the bedroom. Luke would be in a bed on his own, and then Jake would be in the bottom bunk, and Sam would be on the top bunk. And I would always lay with Jake and hold his hand, and I'd always be the first person to sleep. You know, I'd fall asleep first, hold Jake's hand, and then a bit later I'd wake up a bit dazed, and fortunately Luke would be asleep. And so I'd get myself together and always stand up, and as I stood up to the top bunk, I'd always hear this voice that would say, Dad, what do you think heaven's like? And I've just woken up from sleep, and it's our Sam. And he's not sleeping, he's pondering deep things. Dad, what do you think heaven's like? And I said, I don't really know, Sam. I said, because when we try and understand things about God, we tend to try and compare things. That's how we try and understand things, isn't it? You know, when you go to somewhere new, And you come back and you're trying to explain it. You kind of say, well, it's a cross between Keswick and Manningham Park. And people go, oh, yeah, get it right. I know what you mean. Um, Actually, I don't know what I was describing there, but um, it could happen. But we, we understand things through comparisons. But when it comes to heaven, we just don't have the comparisons And I think that's why scripture is so silent. It's almost like, what would be the point of trying to tell you something that you cannot understand? I don't think I said all that to Sam, by the way. But I gave him a little thing. And then I said, but I said, what the Bible does say is that God is preparing mansions for us. So he said, oh, well, I get a mansion. I said, you will get a mansion. Wow. He said, will you have a mansion? 
I said, I'm definitely having the mansion. He said, how will I know which is mine? Good question. I said, you'll know because Jesus will take you there. He said, well, how will I know where yours is? I said, you'll know because when you've been to yours, he'll bring you to mine. I said, the chances are I'll be in mine before you, so I'll have the kettle on. So he said, oh, thanks, and went to sleep. But we don't know about heaven too much. And I think we don't know too much because our minds are finite minds and we're talking about the infinite. We're talking about almighty God. So let's just hang on. Know that it's going to be wonderful and let's discover it when we get there. So the first thing that Jesus is doing is he is preparing heaven for us. The second thing that Jesus is doing for us, he is interceding. If you turn to uh, Romans chapter 8 and verse 33, you read these words. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Now isn't that a wonderful image that right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God and he is interceding for us. You know, the cross and the resurrection are God's victory. And Jesus, as the commander-in-chief, has gone back to heaven and he is conducting the warfare from there. And he is interceding with the Father. Now, I don't quite know how that works. I know that in the past I used to have an erroneous mindset, which was that, generally speaking, God doesn't want to do stuff. But if Jesus intercedes, he agrees And I realize that's erroneous because that's not true. The truth is, God does want to do stuff. And Jesus intercedes on our behalf. And I don't quite know how that works because, like I've said, one of the ways that we try and understand things is by making one comparison to another. The other way that we try and understand things is by breaking things down. So when we try and understand God... You know, helpful theologians have done systematic theology books that kind of break down the attributes of God. You know, so Tozer's The Knowledge of the Holy and others. But what you realize is you can't break God down into pieces. You know, when people try and explain the Holy Spirit, they say, well, it's a bit like an orange. An orange has a pith and a outer peel and then the fruit and that's what God's like it's like really the trouble is with God you can't break him down into his bits and people conveniently say well God was the creator Jesus was the redeemer the Holy Spirit is the sanctifier but even with creation you find that Jesus was involved and the Holy Spirit was involved and they worked together on it so you can't really break it down But what I do know 
is that the concept of interceding is this idea that Jesus is next to his father and he has his eye on the church and he cares deeply about the circumstance in which you find yourself. And he talks to the father about it. And Stephen you know, had that wonderful experience right at the end of his life when he preaches that amazing sermon to the Sanhedrin that just upsets them deeply so that they stone him. And as they're stoning him, Jesus, or so Stephen says, I am looking into heaven and I see Jesus. But it's interesting. He doesn't see him sat. He sees him stood at the right hand of the Father. And I think that's such a wonderful image because, you know, when, you know, like when somebody's about to fall, isn't you that kind of natural reaction to try and get to your feet to stop them falling? Well, when Stephen's been stoned, Jesus doesn't sit on the throne. He stands. But it's interesting. He doesn't intervene and he doesn't change the circumstances, but he receives Stephen. And there's that wonderful image, you know, that wonderful phrase, isn't there, that as he's stoned, he fell asleep. You know, such is the compassion of Jesus that he has taken himself back to heaven in order to care for the church. But then the third thing, and this is the, the primary thought that I want to leave with you today, is that we read in that passage that the reason that Jesus was going back to heaven was to send the Holy Spirit. That's the primary reason Jesus went back to heaven, was to send the Holy Spirit for you and I. You see, when Jesus was on the earth, he was restricted in the same way that we are. If he was in Nazareth, he wasn't in Galilee. If he was in Jerusalem, he wasn't in Nazareth. He was only in one place at any one time. But what Jesus wanted to do was to send the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit could come and live in every single believer's hearts. And it seems to me that one of the most shocking things that I have observed in the time that I've been a Christian is the limits that Christians and the church have placed on the Holy Spirit. That's the most shocking thing. In fact, if you look at um, Psalm 37, I feel a bit like an old man, but, but David says the same. He says, I was young and now I'm old. I've not seen the righteous forsaken nor his descendants begging for bread. And I'm at that stage where I'm thinking, I was young, and now I'm old. And I have seen nothing or little in my own life, in other people's lives, and in the church in general, of what the Holy Spirit could do if we were to release the Spirit into our lives. I've seen so little of it. In fact, I must have been pondering this because I woke up at two o'clock one night this week, and I thought, who are the people that I know that or have known who I thought were truly filled with the Spirit? And at two o'clock in the morning, I was trying to do a mental 
kind of journey through all the people that I knew who I would say were truly filled with the Spirit. Now, you want, might want to do that exercise for yourself. And you might say, well, it just depends what you mean by filled with the Spirit, Jez. What, what would you expect to see of a Spirit-filled person? Well, let me give you four things. I'd expect to see a person experience victory in their own personal life. I'd expect a person to be growing in holiness. I'd expect a spirit-filled person to be joyful. And I think those two things are really important together. Holiness and joy. Because holiness without joy is austerity. But holiness and joy. And then finally, I'd expect to see confidence and boldness. So who are those people where you sort of close your eyes and you think, I am thinking, victorious, holy, joyful, courageous. Who are those people that you're thinking about? I would like to hope that you were saying, Jez, this is a ridiculous exercise because there are too many people that come to mind. But in my experience, it wasn't that at all. I was really struggling to think of people. Or if I thought about people, it was a very, very small number. And yet, I think that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit so that a spirit-filled life was the experience of all believers. And I would just like to encourage you to, to think that through for yourself. To think about what does it mean? You know, I've said in the past, I don't think grace is amazing. I'll tell you what is amazing. is having the Holy Spirit confined to a tiny room in your heart. And not releasing the Holy Spirit in your life. I find that amazing. I find amazing it in my own life. When I think about what could have happened in 40 years of the Spirit breaking down my heart, because that's what he wants to do, break open your heart, take all those separate walls down, and create an open-planned heart that is united to follow God. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And that's what he wants Spirit-filled believers, people that are growing victoriously, who are growing in holiness, who are growing in joy, and who are courageous. Now, I think that that is possible. And then I was kind of mulling over and thinking, that's probably what we're asking for, is what people would call revival. That's probably what that word means. And I was struggling with that. But then I thought, because I always thought revival was bringing back something that was dead. But now I was thinking, actually, no. If we are talking about revival in the sense of rethinking all that we do, then that's what revival, that's the kind of revival that we need. We need that revival of transformation of mindset. And that's not easy. Because honestly, for years and years and years, 
Satan has by stealth found ways of sidelining the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our churches so that the Holy Spirit is pretty much on the sidelines. And for God to bring back the Holy Spirit to be central in our lives and in our churches would require nothing short of revival and nothing short of transformation. Because those things that happened have happened quietly and subtly and stealthily and we don't know it and I was just thinking about this example and this is this is a poor example but imagine a church that decides to have an evangelical event and the church is really excited about it and it's going to be the sort of standard format a meal invite your friends and families who aren't believers come to a meal then they're going to hear a testimony then they're going to hear the gospel and the church is really excited um, and a lady comes to the pastor and she says, Pastor, as you know, I'm very quiet, I'm very shy, and um, I will find this evening quite difficult. But the pastor makes it really easy for them because he says, well, we do need some people to work in the kitchen uh, to dishwash. And that could be your part. And then we have a little talk about the body of Christ, everybody doing their thing. And so that's what she does. But you know, there's a different response, which could be, yes, I understand that you're shy, and I understand that you lack courage, but you've got the Holy Spirit within you. Can we pray now that you will be released to be victorious and holy and joyful and courageous? You see, I think sometimes... Our actions maintain the status quo when what we should be looking for is revival and transformation and seeing things differently. And that's what I think Jesus went back to heaven to do. Holy Spirit, over to you in the lives of believers. Grant them victory. Grant them holiness. Grant them joy and make them courageous. And that's the spirit-filled life that Jesus has called us to. That isn't my experience. And looking at those that I've grown up with and those that I've seen, I don't think it's true of them either. But like I said the other week, well, so what? That was then, but this could be now. It could change in an instance. It could change in a moment. It could change if one person was transformed. It would be radically changed if the whole collection of believers were transformed. But all I'm trying to plead with you is go back and have a look at how central is the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you living that Spirit-filled life? And if you are, rejoice. And if you're not, Maybe now's the time to say to the Holy Spirit, I'm not going to lock you away in a corner in my heart anymore. I'm going to pray through my brokenness that you will be released. And I think that's why Jesus went to the cross and why he rose from the dead and why he ascended. And actually, going back to the point about the second coming, that's actually what Jesus is expecting to find when he returns
spirit-filled Christians, not afraid of his return, excited because it's Jesus. When you return, I will be victorious, sanctified, joyful and courageous and I want to find, I want you to find me in that place at that time. So we're going to finish with a prayer. Uh, we're not going to, I'm not going to ask the band. And I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes to maybe just close your eyes now and just think about what would happen if the Holy Spirit that is within you had no limitations and was released to make you victorious, to make you holy, to make you joyful, to make you courageous. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus redeemed us through his blood. He gave us life through his resurrection and he sent his spirit through his ascension so that your Holy Spirit might live within each one of us. And Father, we just ask for a release of your spirit within each one of us that we would no longer confine your Holy Spirit, your Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God that dwells within us to be sidelined in our lives. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would step into the, uh, into the light, create light within us and set us free to live that victorious, holy, joyful courageous wife in the name of Jesus Amen Amen God bless you have a good week talk to each other about releasing the spirit within one another thank you